From New England Public Radio in Springfield, Massachusetts, this is NEPR News Now. Stories you really should not miss. Thanks for listening. I'm Sam Hudzik. Coming up, there's only one jail in Western Mass that holds detainees on behalf of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And the sheriff of Franklin County has no second thoughts about it. We're on the back end. You know, a lot of what is generating controversy right now and a lot of what the Trump administration is doing is really activity on the front end. And when it comes to juvenile court, what should be the definition of juvenile? I honestly don't think you're fully mature at 18, 19, 20. I think it takes 21 and up to actually get there. And then when you have an adult record, you're just like, ah, you know what, forget about it. It's already there. No one's going to hire me. Lawmakers in Massachusetts and other states are considering giving juvenile courts jurisdiction over 19- and 20-year-olds. Then Edie Madev's new book, a collection of short stories, is getting rave reviews. The author herself is taking it in stride. The writer's world is a long, lonely hall in the desert. And every now and then you stop at an oasis where somebody seems to recognize what you're doing. All that and more just ahead on NEPR News Now. But first, UMass graduation is less than two weeks away. One senior, a public health major from Medford, wants to carry the Tibetan flag in a parade of flags. But the university says no. New England Public Radio's Nancy Cohen reports. UMass has a tradition of inviting graduating international seniors to carry the flag of their country in a special part of the commencement ceremony. But the chancellor's office has denied an honors student's request to carry the Tibetan flag, saying that the school allows flags only from countries that are recognized by the State Department. This response that I got from the school, their decision to not allow me to carry my own flag, it is unacceptable, and it's a form of discrimination, I feel like. Kaysang Nangpa is a U.S. citizen who was born in Tibet. She's the president of the UMass Amherst Students for Free Tibet and says she thought the school was a place that values diversity and inclusion. I feel like the same thing that's happening in Tibet is happening here in my own, my own school. In China, the Tibetan flag is banned. Nangpa says previous graduates, including her brother, had tried but didn't receive permission to carry the Tibetan flag. But, she says, she was still surprised when UMass, with its stated mission to support social justice, said no. UMass Amherst spokesperson Egg Blagazuski says the university understands Nangpa's disappointment and celebrates her heritage, but the school believes the State Department's list is the best standard to follow. We think that the authority to determine nation status best rests with the federal government. And we don't want to be in a position where we're sort of taking sides and disputes about what determines a country. That's not our role or position. Blagazuski says students are allowed to wave flags of their choice during commencement, but not during the official Parade of Nations. Nangpa has turned to the commencement speaker, Elizabeth Warren, for help, asking the U.S. senator to urge UMass to allow her to carry the Tibetan flag. For New England Public Radio, I'm Nancy Cohen. And I should say we asked Senator Warren for comment on that. In a statement, her office says she respects UMass for following its policy. She added that she's proud of her constituents who peacefully advocate for the human rights of all Tibetans. A federal judge last week blocked President Donald Trump's executive order to withhold funding from so-called sanctuary cities. These cities, including some in our region, 
have explicitly said they won't comply with requests from Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, to hold detainees. At the same time, some local prisons are holding inmates on behalf of ICE, including the Franklin County House of Correction in Greenfield, Massachusetts. It's one of four jails that do so in the state, but the only one in western Massachusetts. Franklin County Sheriff Christopher Donnellan oversees the facility. Basically, the people we have here are people who were arrested for committing criminal offenses. Sometime during the course of their arrest or their incarceration for whatever crime they committed, it was discovered uh, that they were here illegally. Uh, Immigration took whatever steps they needed to take to either begin or complete a deportation process. And those folks then come here and wait for either the final verdict or for the actual deportation. New England Public Radio's Henry Epp spoke to Sheriff Donlin in his office. The day Henry visited, the jail was holding 83 inmates from ICE. Detaining these prisoners pays $91 per inmate per day. Donlin says that works out to about two and a half or $3 million a year. That money goes to the state, not directly to the jail. But Donlin says it's worth it. We have the available space. To use that available space to bring in revenue for the Commonwealth uh, certainly helps us. It's not a direct source of revenue for us, uh, but it certainly helps us with the state when we go to them to help fulfill our staffing needs, our reentry and treatment needs. I use it particularly as a little bit of leverage that I'm bringing in this source of revenue for the state. And in return, we hope to get state dollars that helps with our reentry programs, treating addicted men, treating people here with who have mental health uh, issues. Uh, so, so in that, that regard, it helps. Do you have any misgivings with being involved in the process of detaining immigrants? Uh, no, because we're on the back end. You know, a lot of what is generating controversy right now and a lot of what the Trump administration is doing is really activity on the front end, um, and that is the de- detainers to hold. I mean, we have a policy here. If, in fact, we were to have somebody here on a criminal charge and they either deal with that charge or they get bailed on that charge. If, in fact, there were a detainer, you know, we would insist on immigration coming and dealing with it. We're not going to deal with that. And it's currently active in the Massachusetts courts, whether legally we, we can do that. Um, so the, the Trump policies are controversial on the front end. We're dealing with these people on the back end. But still, you're, uh, I mean, you're participating in the processing of people who are in the country illegally and, and some you know, find that controversial that any local or state level law enforcement agency is participating in that. Have you received any pushback in that way from people in the community? People have come in here and asked for clarification on what we do and how we do it. Um, When I've explained it, they are pretty much okay with it um, because we're not, you know, know, a lot of it is misinformation about what they assume the sheriff's office here in Franklin County does. And what I do is clarify to them, there are no deputy sheriffs who work for me who are going out and trying to apprehend or identify people who are here illegally. That just doesn't happen in this department. And we don't engage in any activities on the front end. Earlier in your career, you were in local law enforcement, yes. is that right? Yeah. As, you know, with that background, do you think it's reasonable for local police to opt out of working with ICE? It is because they don't have the training. They don't have the resources. Uh, they don't have the equipment. They don't have the computer access. I mean, there's a lot of things that local police would have to do to prepare for and implement any type of an enforcement policy with any other agency, not just ICE. And Massachusetts law enforcement agencies have not done that. Going forward, do you plan to continue your contract and and, uh, situation with ICE and the federal government to hold people here? Yeah. I I mean, I I see no reason not to do what we're doing. Um, We have a group of men here who we take very good care of. They're in a very safe 
and secure environment. Uh, I think we're doing a good thing for them by uh, providing them with the programming and opportunities that we do. We let them engage in educational opportunities. We let them engage in religious practices. We have give them access to priests and ministers. And at the same time, we're keeping the community safe because people who have committed crimes um, are actually off the streets. And these are not people who are here simply because they entered the country illegally. They're in this system because they committed a crime. Christopher Donnellan is the sheriff of Franklin County, Massachusetts. Massachusetts lawmakers are still working on this session's criminal justice reform package. One proposal among many would allow many offenders to stay in the juvenile court system longer until they turn 21. But not all juvenile justice advocates support it. New England Public Radio's Leah Willingham reports. Billy Alisea says he was 15 years old the first time he stole a car. He was hanging out with a friend who had a master key, a scraped-down Honda key that would work on any vehicle of that brand before 1995. It'll go in and start the car. So we just, boom, and then we're driving. Now we're just having the thrill of driving, you know? It's just, you know, we were young and stupid. That thrill stuck with Alisea, and he kept stealing cars, but at a cost. The 22-year-old is finishing up a sentence at the Hamden County Jail. He says he's done a lot of reflecting over the last three years. I notice now that, you know, like, I did all that for what, you know? It was just not worth it. Alisea now has a felony record. He worries it could haunt him as he tries to get a degree, a career, or start his own business. I honestly don't think you're fully mature at 18, 19, 20. I think it takes 21 and up to actually get there. I'm only 22 years old now. That's what, you know, 21, I was really, it was really drilling on my head. I'm getting too old. You know, I'm still young, but I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting, it's it, it, something you need to give. And then when, and then when you have an adult record, you're just like, ah, you know what, forget about it. It's already there. No one's going to hire me. While juveniles can apply to have their records sealed three years after completing a sentence, felonies processed in adult court often remain on a person's record for life. This could change under a proposal introduced this year in the Massachusetts legislature. Except for juveniles who commit the most violent offenses, like murder, the bill would gradually raise the age when individuals would have to go to adult court from 18 to 21. Nyoka Carey, executive director of the group Citizens for Juvenile Justice, says the adult prison system is failing these young adults. Too many of them are coming back, so we're seeing um, not, you know, high recidivism rates with this group of young people, and they're not getting connected with the kinds of supports and services that they need to get on the right track. The juvenile system, when it works, offers educational programs and counseling focused on the needs of younger offenders. Incarcerating 18- to 20-year-olds in adult prisons, on the other hand, only puts them in a position to re-offend, says Vinny Schiraldi. He's a research fellow at Harvard and the former director of juvenile corrections in Washington, D.C. If you put these young people into jails, onto caseloads that were really designed to focus on the needs of older people on probation or older people in jail and put them in contact with a more sophisticated group of folks who have committed crimes, then the likelihood is that they'll gravitate towards continuing in their criminality, not age out of it and become the kinds of citizens we want them to become. Chiraldi says allowing older teens to go through the juvenile court would decrease crime rates. He points out that since 2013, when Massachusetts last raised the age from 17 to 18, crimes by 17-year-olds dropped by 10 percent. But some juvenile justice advocates think that raising the age to 21 could create more problems than it solves. By overwhelming the system, 
Lawrence Steinberg studies adolescent development at Temple University. You have to ask not just whether that would be better for people that age, but how it would affect the teenagers and the younger adolescents who are in the juvenile system, and whether this would do something that would make that system a worse place for them. Giovanni Smith thinks it might. The 26-year-old Springfield native has been jailed in both the juvenile and adult systems, and he says the older population wouldn't mix well with younger groups. I don't know how the females are, but as for the males, that male ego, it's big. It's real big in prison, and certain people demand respect, and they go about it by fighting or picking on the weak. Another argument against the proposal is accountability. 23-year-old Josh Gonzalez, also of Springfield, says he never experienced the juvenile system, but he says a short stay in an adult facility when he was 19 helped get his life on track. Because once you're in there, you're like, damn, you got to think about it. Like, damn, I'm not a little kid. I got to, like, wake up, basically. That's what happened to me. I was like, damn, I'm up. And then from there, I got determined. After Gonzalez got out of jail, he was able to get a full-time job with the help of ROCA, a Massachusetts organization that supports at-risk young adults. ROCA put us in touch with all of the young people interviewed for the story. The organization does support raising the adult court age to 21. Massachusetts State Senator Cynthia Cream, who filed the bill, says she knows it may be a challenge convincing other lawmakers to get behind it, but says her main argument is a simple one. It's making people realize uh, that People make mistakes, and in particular, juveniles, they are apt to make mistakes, and they ought to be given another opportunity to do better with their lives. Lawmakers in at least three other states, Connecticut, Vermont, and Illinois, filed similar bills this year. Cream's proposal will likely come before a state house committee in the next few months. She's hoping it gets included in broader criminal justice legislation, a complicated proposal in a package full of complicated proposals. For New England Public Radio, I'm Leah Willingham. A probing and deeply ruminative cross-genre odyssey. That's how Kirkus Review describes the newest book of short stories from UMass Amherst professor Edie Madev called Kingdom of the Young. New England Public Radio's Susan Kaplan sat down with Madev and asked how she describes her writing. So animal trackers, say in the Kalahari, have imagined a silver cord from their heart to the animal they want to find. And when I heard this, I was also thinking of in Jane Eyre, there's a line where Mr. Rochester is trying to speak of his love for Jane. And he says, oh, Jane, it is as if there's a silver cord underneath my rib cage that connects me to you. The work here, it is as if it's silver cords back to prior moments of my youth and aging. You know, the first story was written when I didn't know I was pregnant with my first daughter 15 years ago. Not only do I feel that there are silver cords back to these romantic beings that I was at different moments or uh, the romance, the blind romance I saw in others, but, you know, it's my hope that it goes out and that others can have the recognition and catharsis of seeing themselves in the stories. You may be aware that the Kirkus review of your book is about as lovely as any that I've ever read, including comparing you to Flannery O'Connor. That's hand of God stuff in the writer's world, Edie. Is it overwhelming ever? Well, first of all, it's funny because I'm reading a biography of Flannery O'Connor and I just love her. You know, it's that thing of intrinsic reward, intrinsic motivation and external reward. And the writer's world is a long, lonely hall in the desert. And every now and then you stop at an oasis where somebody seems to recognize what you're doing. But one has to do it for the intrinsic motivation, you know, the sense of a calling or vocation. That's what I share with Flannery O'Connor. I'm not going to say anything else about that, but just the feeling of uh, 
what do you do with this little frail little bird that you have in your hand, which is your penchant for writing? You know, will you try to treat it well? If I get too sucked into that kind of dopamine circuit of the internet and all that extrinsic reward, I lose the ability to hold that frail little bird. So you teach, and I want to know if you enjoy it, but I, I, even in what I do, have met, at this point, I have to say, hundreds of people who will say to me without hesitation, oh, I can't write. And I almost always want to say, yes, you can. And you teach in an MFA program at UMass Amherst. What do you say to a young aspiring writer who you think may not have the chops to pull it off? So it may be an occupational hazard, but I tend to have that Emersonian belief in the spark of genius in everyone. I really do. I do think everyone has a story to tell. I believe the perfect story rests with inside everyone as a kind of subtractive sculpture that one has to get the ego out of the way and let that pure story emerge. So I feel that when people say they can't write, it means that they've gotten some layers of civilization. You know, for example, they might not know that the vernacular can come right down to the page. They can, you know, transcribe it orally and then have that transcript and work from that and refine it. Um, so people's ideas get in the way of their being good writers. I, I do tend to think everyone has at least an, one excellent story inside them. Because I think, especially, I know this is our phrase right now, especially in this time, it's very important that we speak to one another, that we have these communities of understanding, that we listen to voices different than our own. That's Edie Maydev. Her new book is called Kingdom of the Young. This podcast is produced by New England Public Radio, the same listener-supported public media company that pumps news and music to your car, your home, and your phone every day of the year. You can support all of it at NEPR.net. Just click the bright orange Donate button at the top of the page. Thanks for listening to NEPR News Now, stories you really should not miss. Until next time. 